So today we're going to be starting covering Genesis chapter 20. And this is not one of those chapters like we just completed a couple of that you just as soon not have to teach or get to teach or that whole business with Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his daughters is uh, not easy to stop and read and contemplate in very many positive ways. But today is a little bit challenging just because it's an awful lot like something we went through before. But we're going to look at chapter 20. So we left Lot in the mountains with two pregnant daughters. The valley of Sodom and Gomorrah was utterly destroyed, including the vegetation. And now we turn the corner. We get back into the uh, Abraham's life. And, and I, I, t- I wrote it down here in my notes. We're off to Abraham's next adventure. I don't know if you'd call this an adventure or something else. But let's read uh, Genesis chapter 20. And um, we'll, uh, we'll talk our way through it and see what's happening here. So I'm looking for a volunteer to read Genesis 20. Alan, looks like you're getting ready to do that. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Sur. And he surjoined in Gar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Amblet, king of Gar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Amblet in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Amblet had not approached her, so he said, Lord, Will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he may pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Amlick rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Amlick called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Amlick said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Amlet took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Amlek said, 
Behold, behold, my land is before you. Behold, where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Amalek, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Amalek because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Okay, <clears throat> this should sound just a little bit familiar. Uh, we've, we've been through a similar passage, if you will. Um, but, but here we have in verse 1, Abraham journeyed, he took a trip from there. So where did he start? Where was Abraham when he started this trip that we're talking about here in chapter 20? Where did he start from? Let's go back to actually Genesis 13:18. That will give us a good, a good description of where Abraham was. This has been his base of operation uh, through this time, uh, including the separation of he and Lot, including the time of going and getting Lot back from those invading kings that came down because they weren't getting their tribute paid to them. So this, this is where he's been. Somebody read Genesis 13, 18 for us. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaths of Marm, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So the oaks of Mamre is where he was, which is next to Hebron, but there, Hebron, but there was a, an area there which people knew, knew what this was, and, uh, and that, that's where he started from in this case. So he went toward the land of Negev. We've talked about this before. Do you remember where the Negev is? Okay. So if we went south of the Dead Sea, um, I can get my, this is small, but you can see the Dead Seas down, down in the southern part of Israel. I'll draw it a little bigger. Any of these markers will work for me today. So you've got the coast, Israel. You've got Egypt down here. I'll get out of your way so you can see it here in just a second. In Israel, you've got the Jordan, and it runs down to the Dead Sea. And the Gav is kind of down in this area, way out of scale. Sorry about that. But it's, it's uh, east of Egypt and <coughs> south of the Dead Sea a bit. Where's Mamre? Mamre, Hebron is right up in here. And so Mamre is close to that. Like I said, I didn't get my scale very good at all. I should have come in ahead of time and drawn that if I wanted to do a good job. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so Hebron's kind of up. Not about the same level in the big, big way of saying it, um, in a coarse way of saying it. Um, about the same level as Jerusalem, off in that general area, maybe a little north of that. And, and so he headed down to the Negev. And 
he settled between Kadesh and Shur, which is kind of on the eastern side of the area of the Negev. Kadesh Barnea is closer to the coast, and it's, it's in that area that he, he went to. And he sojourned in Gerar. So if we were to put, uh, I even drew this out a little bit, and it, does it talk about Beersheba here? I don't remember if I read that in a... No, it doesn't mention Beersheba. But Beersheba is kind of like straight south down in here of the bottom edge of the Dead Sea. And Gerar, well, and, and this is Kadesh. That one didn't stand the test of time at all. Right here is Kadesh. <clears throat> roughly and there's a kind of a stream that runs between the two that's kind of the valley of the Gerar and they called it the Gerar on some maps that stream and so he's down there in that that little valley area and Abram in verse 2 then said um, by the way this is a Philistine area as time goes by that he's in it's south of Israel proper um, but uh, in verse 2, he said, um, this is Sarah, my, he said of Sarah, he is my wife, he said, she is my sister. So let's back up and ask a question first. Was Abram supposed to be traveling? I mean, is he goofing up by going out and getting in the sphere of these other kings? Huh? I don't think the Lord sent it there, did he? Go to Genesis 13. We're going to read verses, verses 14 through 17. Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17. <clears throat> the Lord said to Abram, After Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are, and look north and south and east and west. All the land you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, and if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring would be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So, Abraham has taken one other trip since he and Lot had parted company. Where was that trip? Do you remember that trip and the cause of it? Well, that trip was when Lot and his family and the town was taken captive and he chased those kings way up into northern Israel and over to the east and brought everything back, right? And that's where he runs into uh, Melchizedek afterwards uh, and has an, also an encounter with the king of Sodom where he wouldn't take anything from him. And so this is really the first time for the purpose of just walking the land that he has taken off and God was pretty clear about it. Sojourn, go see it all. I'm giving it all to you. See what I've given you. And so Abraham is down here doing this, puts him in the sphere of this king Abimelech of Gerar, and when he gets down there, he says, uh, she's my sister. Now, we're, well, we'll get more, we'll get some very specific reason for that later. I'll just kind of hold on to that question a little bit, but I'll just ask this one. Has he done this before? 
How'd that work? Well, it depends on how you want to think of it. On one hand, it worked pretty well if your goal was uh, to survive. They all lived through it. If your goal was, I'm going to get some favor from them. I mean, he took out animals and servants and things of wealth. So I don't know. We don't get a clue from Abraham in the first encounter how he thinks it went, other than that was down in Egypt, wasn't it? What did Pharaoh think of Abraham? We're going to provide you help to find your way to the border. That's what he thought of him. Get, make sure he gets out of town. It's like the old sheriff, you know. Get him to the county line. We don't need him over here anymore. Or maybe the state line or something like that in some old western. You know, get him out. Don't want to have anything to do with you, Abraham. So anyway, he, he does it again. She's my sister. And the king of the area did the same thing that Pharaoh did. What did he do? Yeah, beautiful woman, would like to have her in my sphere. And so he did that. And uh, so um, he took Sarah. And then in verse 3, uh, God stepped in. What did God do and say? Yeah, and what's the context? Where, in what mechanism? Huh? In a dream. So God appears to Abimelech in a dream. And if you look at the Old Testament, many people, when they came into the, quote, presence of God, was it the full presence of God? I don't know. But in general, when they come into the presence of God, they, they're undone. And Abimelech meets has his first encounter with God in this dream and the opening statement would get most of our attention if we had a dream and we knew that God was speaking to us in a dream and he started out with the words you're a dead man that's probably not going to be very reassuring uh, you're a dead man and why was he a dead man this woman that you've taken into your house is already the wife of a man she's married and um, there's something significant in that statement right there. What is significant about the cause God gives to Abimelech that he's a dead man? He said, what is the issue? Why is he, why is he a dead man? Because she is married. And it's interesting then in the context of Old Testament where you see different kinds of things than we would anticipate today. Um, some men, men of God, had more than one wife. And you go, that doesn't really fit. There's not a lot of comment in the scriptures about that being an issue. Obviously, when uh, Jacob has, mo has two wives, it causes all manner of problems. And we see the problems, but, you know, just it, it's just kind of a, it, it seems like the, the world situation is a little different, but it is enough for God to say she was married. He didn't have to say <clears throat> she's the wife of a prophet, which he's going to call Abraham a prophet later. You know, he didn't put her in a special place. It's just she's a married woman. That's enough. And so there's great respect, obviously, that if a woman is remarried, Abimelech doesn't say, well, so? You know, Abimelech says, no, wait a minute. What did Abimelech say? Well, first of all, let's get the facts. 
What had been the interaction between Sarah and Abimelech at this point? They had no relations. They had no relations. They, didn't, they weren't in physical contact. Don't know if they saw each other face to face. Don't know if they talked, but there hadn't been any physical contact. Touching is the word Abimelech usually says. Well, he said in verse 4, I not, had not come near her. And so Abimelech, what's his response? How does he react to God? It wasn't my fault. Not my fault. And he even questions God. I don't, I don't want to say he put him to the test. I don't want to say he argued with him. But he asked a very legitimate question. Lord, will you slay a nation? Will you do harm to these people even though they've done nothing that they knew was wrong? They're blameless. What does it mean, blameless here? Yeah, no sin. I mean, what you're accusing of uh, us of, we didn't even know we were doing. And by the way, it hasn't reached any kind of sinful behavior, even if she is married. And then in verse 5, he goes a little further. What, is, what, what do we see in verse 5? Who does Abimelech call out in verse 5 as having some fault in this? Abraham. Did he himself, meaning Abraham, not say to me, She's my sister. And he also calls out Sarah, right? She herself said, he's my brother. So Abimelech then, we, if we were to put it in our words, he says, in my conscience, in the integrity of my heart, in truthfulness of my intent and what I meant, um, there is innocence of my hands. I have... In, in, the, in, in what I've done. There's not, nothing here for me to be condemned over. Um, I will tell you this. If you look at verse 4, um, in the New American Standard, he asked the question, Lord, will you slay a nation? That is not a formal name of God there as the Old Testament people would have used it. This is not God the Most High. This is, this is little letters, Lord, Okay. <coughs> So he, it's, it's, a, um, it's a term of respect and prominence over them, but um, it's not, a, it's not a, a name for God. Um, so in verse 6... Are you saying then that he doesn't realize he's talking to God? Well, clearly he understood that it was God that was appearing to him. I'm just saying the words he picked, did he know the name Yahweh or Elohim? Don't know, but he didn't, he didn't use that word here. So it may just be out of his ignorance, not being familiar with the God of Abraham, that he used more of a generic term than a specific name for God. I'm not saying that he was being disrespectful to God. That's not my intent. I'm just telling you what, what I saw when I was looking at the words. Um, so God continues to communicate with him in verse 6 um, and he says yes I know that in the integrity of heart you've done this so what is God saying to Abimelech in that part of what he, his reply I know you're innocent yeah I know you're innocent and he goes on to say and I also kept you from sinning against me therefore I did not let you touch her so Abimelech took credit hey I'm without fault here at least to some extent 
And God said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and what does God say is the basis upon which Abimelech did not actually do anything that he would have to be held accountable for? Yeah, I, I, I knew you had integrity of your heart, so I kept you from doing this thing that you had in mind that would have been uh, wrong. It would have, been, it would have kept you out then for more potential judgment. So God says, I know it, and I kept you from touching her, which goes back to say then if God hadn't intervened, there's at least a strong possibility Abimelech would have been in a much more embarrassing situation, a much more condemning situation. Uh, so that innocence of hands that Abimelech talked about, who really gets credit for that? God does. So in verse 7, God gives him some orders. And he says, restore the man's wife. And he gives him a reason. Why? He's a, He's a prophet. So now God is raising up Abraham's prominence in the eyes of Abimelech. He's a prophet. He's a man. What is a prophet? Yeah, prophet, uh, spokesman for God, messenger of God, speaks on behalf of God. Uh, sometimes a prophet will be giving prophecy is the way we often talk about it as far as future events, but often a prophet is simply bringing the truth of God to you. And he says, so he's a prophet, and this prophet then will pray for you and you will live. And then God, just to make sure things are very clear, but if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech has within his responsibility an action to take upon which the safety, the continued living of himself and his whole clan uh, is, is uh, called into his responsibility there. So what does Abimelech do first in verse 8? Gets up early and? And what does he do with regard to those servants? Yeah, he scares them. And how does he do that? He tells them what God told Yeah, uh, by the way, you know, we're all on the hook here. We've got to get this woman safely back to her husband or none of us will be surviving. How did the servants take that? They were afraid. They were afraid, rightly so. Um, they recognized this was important, and so Abimelech is doing what a prudent man would do at this point. He recognizes the truth of the threat that God has put in front of him and the actions that he's given them to do, and he is realizing that there's a lot of people involved, and somebody might make a misstep here unless we get them all lined up. And so he lines up everybody involved in this operation and says, don't make a misstep here. Don't misunderstand who Sarah is. She's important. She's important in the eyes of God who visited me in a dream. She's important in the eyes of Abraham who's a prophet and is her husband. And she's important to you because if we don't do this right, we're all dying. And so then Abimelech in verse 9 calls out Abraham. And he says, what have you done to us? Why does Abimelech blame Abraham? He lied to him. Well, that's an interesting statement. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit. Um, why would, if you were Abimelech, why would you say to Abraham, you lied to me? He just didn't disclose the full truth. 
Well, we'll get, we'll, get, we'll get to some of that. That's right. You put me in a position where I thought, um, when you said she's your sister, what does that imply? Yeah, it, 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 she's, she's a person that could be brought into a husband-wife relationship. Um, and we don't know exactly what Abimelech's intentions were. And obviously, does Abimelech already have a wife? He, he had at least one. It's mentioned later on. We'll get there. So I don't know exactly what Abimelech's intentions were, but, um, you know, he, he got a very different message. And, and we'll, we'll get to that. But what, So that's what he, he had done. You didn't give us enough of the story to keep us. And the result is, he says there in verse 9, and how have I sinned? The result is, how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? In other words, as a result of your statements to us we've done something that clearly in the eyes of God should not have been done and so you brought us into accountability in front of God and these things ought not to be done and he's asking the question what have I done to you that you would put me in this kind of a jeopardy in verse 10 Abimelech goes on and says to Abraham what have you encountered some says what have you seen but what is it that you that you that's a part of your experience that has led you to do this thing? Uh, Abraham has an answer, and the answer starts in verse ten. I'm sorry, eleven. And what is Abraham's answer? You thought they didn't fear God. Yeah, nobody here knows God. You don't fear God. And as a result, what did he expect? They would kill him. You take Sarah. Yeah, to get Sarah, this beautiful woman, you're going to kill me. And so if you put all those pieces together, uh, and we will in a minute, it, it gets to be kind of strange. We'll, we'll get there. Let's get to the rest of the, Abraham's answer. Verse 12, in addition or besides, she really is my sister, half-sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And then verse 13 gets even a little more weird. And so he says, because I've got this beautiful wife, I know that men will kill to have a beautiful woman in this era, particularly men of power, and so I did this subterfuge. I mean, he didn't say it that way. He said, really, I just told you the truth. She really is my sister. I just didn't tell you that she was also my wife. But in verse 13, we even get a little more insight into this strategy that Abraham has been using. He said, it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her. So we're clear back. Abraham was 75 years when he was called out. We're year, about either 99 or 100, depending on when his birthday was now, because that's his age when Isaac comes and Isaac is about to come I don't mean that Sarah was pregnant we don't know if she was pregnant or not it really talks about her becoming pregnant in chapter 21 so what's the timeline there we don't really have anything for sure but probably later than this um, but he said this is the kindness which you will show me so he's talking to Sarah saying this is how you're going to be kind to me this is what you need to do to be kind to me to to make our, and this is our strategy, that everywhere we go, you will say, he's my brother. 
So we have two encounters that we see specifically with very important powerful people. Pharaoh, some time back, and now with Abimelech down here uh, in the land of Gerar, where this strategy leads to a conflict where they get a very powerful person um, lined up crosswise with God over the, what they have done with Sarah because Abraham and Sarah, in response to Abraham's direction, has said, we're brother and sister, which wasn't entirely a lie, was it? But would we say then Abraham deceived, lied to Pharaoh and now Abimelech? Yeah. Absolutely. He may not have said something that was untrue, but he certainly left them with a belief that was false. The only reason they would emphasize their brother-sister relationship would be so that they did not think. It was his intention that they would not think that Abraham might be her husband as well. And out of that deception, um, then these men took action that they thought was left open to them and got themselves crosswise with the very God creator. The last time he did this, I already mentioned this, we could go over and read Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Let's do that very quickly. Let's see how that one turned out. So the last time it happened, after they realized that um, Sarah, that there was a problem, uh, we can see how all of that came out. Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Who's got that for us? Are you there, Gary? Yep. Would you read that for us? 10 through 20. Okay. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that I may go well, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And the princesses of Pharaoh saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dwelt well with Abram. He dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, and male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so, I, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So, 
How did it turn out? What happened in Pharaoh's house? Plagues. Many plagues. What were they? We don't know. But that word plagues doesn't show up a lot in the Old Testament. And when it does, it's usually pretty bad. And we don't know how Pharaoh found out that she was Abraham's wife and that was the cause. But somehow he did. So he goes back to Abraham with a, or Abram at that time with a similar confrontation. Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? And so Abraham is given, he had already been given a lot of goods of wealth. And uh, so they let him keep that, gave him his wife back, and escorted them out. So that's how it came out the first time. So this time, let's see what happens uh, to Abraham. And so he's explained to Abimelech that she really was his sister, so that wasn't an outright lie. But he made it clear that I did this because what I expect in a godless area is that you're going to kill the husband of a beautiful woman so you all can have her for your own. And so in verse 14, this is what Abimelech then does. He took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. So once again, some level of wealth is being given to him. And he restored his wife Sarah to him. Now he goes a little different direction than Pharaoh went. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. He also directs comments and action towards Sarah. And he said to Sarah, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. And so he gave him monetary, monetary wealth or at least precious coins. It is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. So this gift is a symbol that we honor the marriage, we honor you, Sarah. Nothing untoward has happened. We're on good standing one with another. And so Abimelech has offered to Abraham some things of wealth as well as you want to stay in the area, help yourself. Now what did Abimelech know that wasn't expressly, at least in the words we're given in the Old Testament, expressed to Pharaoh. What information did he have that Pharaoh didn't have? God was protecting him. Well, God was protecting him. Now, Pharaoh, I think, understood that because of the plagues that came. There's another piece in here. She was his half-sister. Well, she was his half-sister. She had, he had that information. The one I'm headed for is God proclaimed to Pharaoh that Abraham's a prophet and that he had the kind of favor with God that would benefit Abimelech because you go, you restore his wife, and it may be that Abraham will pray for you. And so he recognizes that Abraham is a man that God favors, and so he is choosing to show honor to Abraham that is above at least what Pharaoh did. And he also then gave this gift that was intended to be a gift showing that nothing inappropriate, untoward had happened while Sarah was in his care and custody. In verse 17, 
it says that indeed Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so they bore children because the Lord had done what? They were not able to have children within his household, both out of his marriage, but also out of the maids, because God had closed up their wombs and they were reopened. They could again become productive people in the course of having offspring. And um, it was because of the fact that Sarah, Abraham's wife, was with them, and now God restored all of that as a result of Abraham's prayer. So, when we look at this passage, um, there's a lot of things we could reflect on. And I've got some things that came to my mind that's like questions about this whole scenario about what happened here and what should have happened here how does this reflect on the people involved in the in the account and so i guess first i'd like to see what things come to your mind when you look at this and you think about abraham and sarah and abimelech and this whole encounter does anything kind of pop out at you and go hmm this is interesting thing to think about okay yeah. Now, of course, I don't know about Pharaoh, but in this case, um, Abimelech, other than honoring Abraham with some goods, Abimelech is made whole again. Um, but but you're right. So, in 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 the course of what you said, God punished the wrong people. Um, we have to say God's just, so we're going to have to say um, no, probably not, but. Um, let's look at the other side of that. You implied Abraham should have been punished. Why should Abraham have been punished? Okay. And that and that's the piece that that's one of the pieces that that I. I, I, I made some notes about here. What does this say about Abraham's faith? He's got a strategy that doesn't depend upon God to be successful, but, but depends upon Abraham's manipulating the situation he finds himself in as he's traveling around. And one of the things that in this whole story that I hadn't picked up on before, that they hatched this strategy 25 years ago, approximately. So everywhere they go, they said they were going to do this. This is what Abraham, has, has this lie been consistently told everywhere they went? I don't know. I'm not trying to put anything in the story, but it was their plan to do that. Um, and so... What's Abraham trusting in? Himself. Himself. His ability to manipulate the situation that he's in and get the result that he wants. What is the result he wants? Yeah, because if, if, you, if you put this through your, your processing a little bit, how much is he caring about Sarah? Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know very many women in a good marriage that would say, yeah, no problem, they'll let you live, and then they'll try to take me as their wife, and that's a good outcome. I mean, where's this? Where, how can you put this together and come up with some sort of a scenario? You go, yeah, th yeah, this is a good plan. This is going to work. Sir, if the man, all he wants to do is live, that is selfish, but you might succeed there. Abraham was never bodily threatened, was he? Um, Sarah would willingly just go with. I, 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 maybe, maybe you wouldn't know that good. Maybe, you, you know, uh, we we ought to be careful on how many assumptions we make out of the way we live life in our perspective. I do think um, women's um, interaction with the male community was much more of a yes sir kind of a thing. I don't know that. I don't. I never met personally Sarah and Abraham. I'm starting to feel like I'm old enough to have done that, but I'm not there. <laughs> and so you've got Sarah and Abraham. I, I don't know what their situation was like, but I, I agree. With, I'm, in my heart, or in my intuition, when I think about when they first hatched this plan, I can just see Sarah going, "I don't like this." I mean, just. But anyway, that's the path they went down. We've already got one example in the Old Testament, and I took us back there to read it again for this reason. If, when you look at that and the way it came out, it seems surprising to me that Abraham tried it again. Now, on one hand, he got sent on his way with a lot of stuff. And maybe Abraham looked at that and said, wow, that worked better than I thought it would. <laughs> You know, I don't know. It, there's no reflection in the scripture on what Abraham thought about it, but that was a tense period of time. Um, for whatever reason, Pharaoh figured out that the problem is I, this woman is Abraham's wife. We don't know if somebody told him. We don't know if Sarah told him. We don't know how he got that information, but we've got plagues. And so I've got to get this woman back to her real husband. And there probably was some fear on Pharaoh's life. If we were, and you can't, this isn't fair. This isn't what you want to do with the scriptures. But if we were to alter the story a little bit, if it hadn't been for the plagues, but Sarah just said, hey, I don't, I don't want to be here. I'm really his wife. If Pharaoh said, well, fine, then we'll take you back. If it wasn't for the plagues, if it wasn't clear that God was taking care of Abraham, I think Abraham's life might have been in real serious jeopardy right there. What did you do to me? I'm, I'm Pharaoh, and you're who? A guy traveling around here in a tent? You're done. I mean, I, I, if you just look at the ways of the world and kings and power, I can see where that might have been the outcome. But anyway, God does it again. And God does it again. God does do it again, but Abraham does it again, and God again protects Abraham. And he does it with a lot of clarity this time. And, and, and he does do it justly in the sense that he tells Abimelech, yeah, I know. Your heart has integrity, and I have kept you from the big sin here. So just take her back, and you can live. Oh, and by the way, he is a prophet. He'll pray for you. One of the things that comes as a question here as I look at this, how much time was involved? 
Did they already know that they were no longer able to conceive and bear children? I don't know. But it's clear that that, uh, that was the case because of what God has told us here. And so who was Abraham afraid of? Let's look at Proverbs 29.25. Proverbs 29.25. Proverbs 29:25. Who can read that for us? The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Pretty simple proverb, isn't it? Would Abraham have benefited from this proverb? Yeah, he could have avoided some real interesting troubles. Because who he was afraid of were men. They's going to kill me. Well, now what promise had God given you? Trust in God. There's a snare in being afraid of men. Trusting in God is the path that you should be taking. And so I made a note here. Wisdom versus fear. Abraham listened to his fear instead of seeking out wisdom. Because frankly, it didn't take a whole lot of thought with our hindsight. If we'd been in Abraham's shoes... Would we have figured it out any quicker than Abraham? Honestly, I'm not sure Abraham ever figured it out. God doesn't say to Abraham, quit it. This isn't the right path. We don't get any kind of anything from God other than God fulfilled his promise. If they curse you, I'm going to curse them. If they bless you, I'll bless them. I mean, God just carries out what he told Abraham we do. Why does God just let this go? I don't know. Well, the other thing we don't know, honestly, if you look at the life of Abraham, who lived lots of years, if somebody were to, that knew all the details, write a biography of the life of Abraham, it'd take up most of this Bible, probably, right? He lived a lot of years. There's so much we don't get told. So in that, might there be something? Possibly. I'm not trying to say there is. But here's Abraham living this out, and it's just like, God just says, I'm, I'm blessing you. I'm taking care of you. I'm keeping you out of trouble. You know, like, like a, sometimes a child, we have to kind of help keep him between the ditches. Um, God is keeping Abraham between the ditches. Um, go over to Matthew 10, 16. Now let me give you the context here for this passage. Jesus is sending out the 12. They're going to go out and go to the... I think it's a 12. This might be the 70. I might be off. I think this is a 12. But he's sending them out into the world to be his witnesses in various towns. And this line comes out of that. And, and I think it's a, it's a good line. And I think we can apply it to Abraham and probably begin to apply it to some of our situations in life. Um, somebody read Matthew 10, 16. I send you out like sheep in an area full of wolves. Be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. What is Jesus telling them? Let's start at the beginning. What does it mean I'm sending you out like sheep in this area full of wolves? 
They're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. I'm sending you into an area that just based on who you are and who they are, you're in a weak situation. And then he tells them to be what? Wise. Wise as serpents. Meaning crafty, right? But with what else? Innocent as doves. So he's telling them, don't be stupid, but do it in an innocent way. In other words, don't, don't go down foolish paths. Don't pick a path of foolishness. Pick a path of wisdom. Pick one with insight. Don't be afraid to think about how the interaction with the people is going to go. But at the same time, never let yourself get caught up into trying to manipulate people in a way where your innocence is sacrificed. Uh, either for your own protection or for the um, success of the ministry that I'm sending you out for. And if Abraham had applied that, he might have gone at things a little differently. Because did, it, did he say stay as innocent as doves? I don't think we could say that, could we? He was willing to be deceptive, to some extent at least. He didn't tell any lies, but he certainly left people with false ideas about the situation. And if he had done that, combined with Proverbs 29:25, when you're afraid of men, there are snares out there for you. So don't fear men, trust God. And if he had done that, particularly with the promises he had, I think he would have been better off by far than the path he took. But at the same time, you know, this is the path he took, and God did bless it, and we don't want to start acting like it didn't turn out well for Abraham. So do we find ourselves in situations where we might easily be fearful of men? Maybe for some of us that fear is even growing as we see the changes happening around us. What are these men going to do to me? What are they going to do to the better parts of the heritage of the nation I live in you know what's going to happen here where is this going to wind up what are they doing to our economy what are they doing what are they what are they what are they and those things can and will affect us and we don't have the power to say stop it uh, we might be able to influence it and when we can we probably should do that um, but we might find ourselves in situations like Abraham did where he was in fear of his own life, wasn't he? And our apostles were in fear of their own lives at times, right? They were before the Sanhedrin. They took beatings. Paul was stoned. I mean, there's a lot of this kind of stuff going on where it was much more fearful for them than it is for us right now. Where we get there, I don't know. We might. Are people in the world today there? where if they ally themselves with Christ, they might lose their life? Absolutely. So go over to Luke chapter 12. I want you to read verses 11 and 12. This is Jesus himself speaking. He is talking to his followers, particularly the 12, about their way of doing business in some of these fearful moments. And it will be after he's gone. So let's read Luke 12, 
12, 11 and 12. Who's got that for us? When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Contrast that with Abraham's strategy. When did Abraham cook up his strategy? Before they headed out. As God was calling them out of the, his father's house, he cooked this strategy up. Is that very different than this? Yeah, because it, it's easy if you think about being called in front of people with the power of life and death, physical life and death over you, to go, wow, I've got to handle this right. How, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Jesus said to these 12, now we're not the 12, but I think the same principle will carry forward to us, how are we to react to that? What's our strategy? Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. Don't be anxious. And trust in the Lord. Expect the Holy Spirit to give you the right answers as you're in front of the people. Does that mean a person called in front of the people that might have the ability to take their lives are always going to have safety? No, think of Stephen. Here's Stephen before accusers. Men mad at him. And he is filled with the Spirit. You see that happening. And you see that being filled with the Spirit described during that encounter. And instead of figuring out how to calm him down, the Spirit leads him to tell him the truth in such a manner they are greatly inflamed and stone him to death. And I hold that up as a positive example. It would always be a positive example if our goal is that our lives would glorify Christ and tell the truth to the world that's lost and needs salvation. And did Stephen do that? He did that in spades. So he did that very effectively despite the fact their reaction was lethal anger. And so we, but we can expect that when we get in the difficult situations that God's spirit, if we are yielded to it, I mean, here, here's, we're back to the fear of man, right? It's a snare. And we need to be wise. And wise is always going to be a path that glorifies and honors God. And we can depend on the Holy Spirit to lead us into that. If we don't like Abraham, figure out our own strategy and try to implement that. Um, so, am I trying to say Abraham was um, a total jerk? I don't know how hard to be say he wasn't a bit of a jerk. And I'll leave God to judge Abraham. I, I can't. And it's very clear that God continues to bless Abraham. He listens to his prayer. So... It might just be that situation where God goes, watch them silly humans do it again, and I'll take care of them. And maybe God was frustrated with Abraham as a result. I don't know. But certainly it was a difficult situation, and we're going to find ourselves as we live our lives in difficult situations. And fear of man is a snare. Trusting in the Holy Spirit is the right answer. Questions, comments? 
All right, well, let me close with a word of prayer. Father, we can hear words like this. We can see stories. We can look at your New Testament admonitions about how to respond when we're in situations where we are tempted to fear men. Uh, and Lord, sometimes we may even already have a pre-decided strategy on how to minimize their effect on us. But Lord, let us be constantly looking to your Holy Spirit. Lord, let us run to wisdom and away from our own foolishness. And Lord, in the midst of all that, remind us again and again you are sovereign, that you take us through the very details of life in the way that you want us to go. Even in our rebellion, Lord, you are planning for our salvation. You are planning for us being sanctified, both positionally and as we grow. So Lord, grow us away from sin away from the fear of man, toward glorifying you through all of our behavior and speech and trusting in your Holy Spirit to take us there. It's through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.